At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled, as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us and how the promises He kept then fulfill our deepest longings now. Have you ever been invited uh, to try something that will change your life? Like, I don't know when that phrase started to become popular. Like, try this. It'll change your life. Do this. It'll change your life. I was literally watching football this weekend, and I saw an advertisement for Mountain Dew that said it was life-changing. Now, I've had a lot of Mountain Dew in my day. I'm not sure how much it's changed my life. And if it has, it's probably for the worse, not the better. Right, but it, there seems to be this growing, like, you got to try this. It'll, it'll change your life. Have this experience. It will change your life. But the problem is, we hear that claim all the time, but rarely our lives are actually changed. In fact, so much so that I don't know about you, but I kind of have had a growing skepticism. When everybody, whenever somebody comes and says, this will change your life, my first immediate thought is, no, it won't. No, it won't. You're just trying to hook me, right? You're just trying to suck me in. And so we hear it. It'll change your life. We encounter promises like this all the time, from the advertisements that we hear to the political campaigns that we encounter. It seems like wherever we go in certain places and spheres, there's someone claiming that this thing, this experience, this will finally bring us the happiness, the joy, the fulfillment, the good life that we long for. But the reality is, those promises often remain completely unfulfilled. In fact, so much so that I would bet almost every single one of us lives with some sort of low-grade skepticism when it comes to the grand claims of what will actually change our lives. The problem is, God, in his word, makes a lot of promises that he said will impact and change our lives. God constantly is making promises that he says, this actually will change the very nature of reality and the very nature of your life. But the problem, I think, for many of us is we have a low-grade skepticism about those sort of claims in general, and even more so when it comes to the claims that God makes in his word. How do we know that God actually is faithful to fulfill those promises? How do we actually know that what God says will happen will happen? Well, this morning we're kicking off a series that we're calling Fulfilled, where we're strategically looking at a section of Scripture around the birth of Jesus where the author Matthew wants to help us see that God is actually faithful to fulfill his promises. Matthew was one of the earliest followers of Jesus, and as he went to write down the story of Jesus, he begins that work, what we call the Gospel of Matthew, by telling the story of Jesus' arrival, his coming. And when he does, he structures that story around five specific fulfillments 
in which we see God fulfill his promises in Jesus. And as God fulfills his promises, it begins to help us see how God meets the longings of our lives now. So I want to invite you over the next several weeks to join me as we explore the gospel of Matthew because I think as you see how God fulfills his word that it actually does change your life. Don't believe me? Stick around and find out. We're going to start this morning with Matthew's first passage, which I just read for you. But as we jump in, I kind of want to begin a little bit with a visual illustration. I think it's going to kind of set up a little bit of where I think Matthew wants us to go this morning. If I was to put before you the words God and us, and I was to leave a blank in between those words, what word do you think belongs between God and us? Don't answer me. Just think about it for a second. What word belongs between God and us? It's an interesting question when you really stop and consider what that statement is asking. Right? On one side, you have God, the eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, holy creator of everyone and everything. And on the other side, you have us finite, limited, what scripture would say, sinful and broken humanity. And the blank asks us for a moment to consider what is the nature of the relationship between the two? What belongs in the middle between God and us? How do we relate? Lots of people have answered that question over the year. Lots of words have been either overtly or maybe not so overtly, put in between God and us. For instance, some people would maybe put the word over in between, that God is over us. Oftentimes you find this in more deterministic religions or philosophies, that God is over, he set the bar, it just happens what happens, and we really have little control over it. For many years, I lived in the Middle East, and one of the common phrases that they use there is the phrase, Allah, if the Lord wills. And it's used of everything. If I get in a car accident, the Lord willed it. If something good happens in my life, it's a, it's a view that says God is over us. He determines. doesn't really matter what I do. What is, is. For some people, the word they might put in there is God under us. These philosophies put us at the center And say, essentially, God is just a construct of the human mind and the human imagination in some sense to make sense of the world. But at the end of the day, we're really the ones that things are about. We're the ones who determine. We're the ones in charge. And God, in whatever place that skews out, God is really under us. We're at the top. For others, it might be that God's around us. That God is inherent in creation, in the world, in the universe. That this carries the essence of God. When we think of God, merely look that God is in everything. This is the philosophy of panentheism. That God is within all. He's around us. For others, it's God is within us. This is the popular New Age philosophy of our day. That the divinity is within you, you just have to discover it. And when you discover it, you'll see that you're actually truly divine. I mean, I could probably keep going. And if we went around this room, lots of us already have words that we put in. But go back to the question, what belongs in between God and us? 
The way you answer that question is significantly important. Not only does it matter because of how you think about God, it matters because it influences the way in which you relate to him or don't relate to him. As theologian A.W. Tozer once famously noted, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you think belongs in the blank determines the way in which you will relate and understand who God is and what your relationship is to him. As we dive into our text today, we're going to see that Matthew actually has a clear understanding of what he thinks belongs in the blank between God and us. He actually gives it to us in the very first fulfillment passage that he gives in his narrative. I already read it for you, but look at it again with me. It comes right towards the kind of middle end of our passage in verse 22. Matthew says this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, there's a lot to unpack, and we're going to unpack much of it. For instance, you might be asking, what took place? If all this took place, what actually happened? We're going to get to that in a second. But the first thing that I want you to see is that Matthew actually is going to give you kind of the main idea of the story that he's presenting, at least in this first fulfillment passage. It comes in this little parentheses that he gives at the end of his quotation. Matthew here in verse 23 is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. We'll unpack this more in a second. But he gives this famous prophecy and he ends it with this word, Emmanuel. And then he takes a moment and he translates it for those that are reading his letter. What does that word, Emmanuel, mean? It means God with us. In this little phrase, Matthew is inviting all of us, all of his readers, into the story that he's telling and the point that he's making. You see, that word Emmanuel was originally in the Hebrew. Matthew now translates it into the Greek for a much wider audience, and in doing so is inviting you to consider what that prophecy is saying and the reality that it is presenting to the world. It means God with us. He's inviting everyone from everywhere to consider what Jesus means when it comes to the relationship between God with us. And it's here, Matthew will fill in the blank. And this is what he wants you to see, that in Jesus, God comes to be with us. God comes to be with us. That simple truth is one of the most mind-boggling things when you really stop to think about it. That in Jesus, God is with us. That has some pretty massive implications, not only for the world and for our lives, of how we understand God and how we relate to him. Understanding God with us has the potential to change everything. But the question that I want to start with is, how do we know that it's true? Because if we don't know if it's true, then we can't explore the implications. And Matthew wants you to consider, how do we know that it's true, that God is actually with us, that Emmanuel is here? 
Well, he strategically structures the first part of this passage, his fulfillment passages, around Matthew, around, I'm sorry, around Isaiah's prophecy to help you see that Jesus is actually fulfilling the promise and signs that God had said long ago. Two signs that Matthew shows in this passage that Jesus fulfills, helping us to understand that God is with us. The first one we see right away at the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy. Look again with me at verse 23. This was to fulfill what the prophet was spoken by the prophet. First sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive. The first thing of why Matthew wants us to know that we can know that God is with us is because of the virgin conception. Again, in verse 23, Matthew is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah brought many prophecies, hundreds of years before Jesus' arrival, brought many prophecies to God's people concerning God's judgment. He prophesied how God would send them into exile, how God ultimately would bring his people out of exile. But then he also began to prophesy that there was going to be a coming Messiah or anointed one that God would send in a much greater way to bring an ultimate redemption to all of God's people, to redeem the entire world out of its exile to sin and bring about God's kingdom and new creation. And Matthew wants to help you see that he thinks Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And what we see is that Matthew structures this story to highlight the first part of Isaiah's prophecy. That what will signify that the Messiah has come is the conception from a virgin. You can actually see Matthew's emphasis on it through the text. Go back and look at verse 18 with me and see how he structures his passage around this. He says, now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, note that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So right in the first verse, Matthew wants you to know, hey, Mary conceived Jesus before Mary and Joseph ever came together. I don't think I have to explore what that means, right? We, we get that? And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Jump down to verse 24. When Joseph awoke from his dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So as Matthew tells the birth story of Jesus, he emphasizes on three different occasions that Mary and Joseph did not know each other prior to Jesus' birth. Now, why does he put that emphasis there? Well, if you go back into Isaiah chapter 7 that Matthew quotes, we see that God originally had given this prophecy to King Ahaz. Essentially, in Isaiah chapter 7, God comes to King Ahab, Judah's about to get divided, invaded. And God says to Ahaz, ask me for a sign. Ask me for a sign that I will deliver you. And Ahaz, in his arrogance, says, there's no way. I'm not going to ask you for a sign. I'm not going to do that. And God essentially says, you're doing that out of pride, not out of faith. So I'm going to give you a sign anyway. A virgin is going to conceive and she's going to call, have a son and call his name Emmanuel. And that's going to be the sign that I am going to deliver you. And that's what happened. Many people, when they look back at that original prophecy, they believe that Isaiah... The prophet, actually his son, would become the sign of God's deliverance. 
But if you keep reading on in Isaiah and you get into chapters 8 and 9, what you see is that the promise that God made in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 didn't seem to just stop with the arrival of Isaiah's son. That there seems to actually be a much bigger fulfillment that God was promising. That God was actually going to begin to move in a way in which he would come to be present with his people. That there's going to be a greater son. This son is going to be the true Emmanuel where God is present. And so the Jews began to anticipate a greater fulfillment of the prophecy. And one of the signs that they began to believe about the greater fulfillment was that this would actually be a miraculous conception. See, if you go back into the Hebrew... I know I'm going to get technical. Just stay with me. This is a point because Matthew's trying to make it and I want you to understand it. If you go back into the Hebrew, the word that they use for virgin in the original Hebrew in Isaiah chapter 7 simply means a young woman of marriageable age. That's that's what the Hebrew word means. That's simply the idea. And so um, the question is, is God actually prophesying that it's a virgin? Well, the Jews came to be seen that the sign for the true and greater Messiah that was to come was to actually come from somebody who was physically a virgin who would conceive a child. We know this because several hundred years, a couple hundred years before Jesus was born, the Jews translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek in what's known as the Septuagint. And when they translated that work, the word that they chose to translate Isaiah 7:14 is not the Greek word for a woman of marriageable age. It's the Greek technical word for a virgin. Meaning, They had come to see that the sign that Isaiah promised would actually only be fulfilled by someone who would conceive a child yet remain a virgin. So when Matthew now comes to tell the story of Jesus, what he wants you to see is that original promise that was pointing towards a greater fulfillment is actually taking place here in Christ. New Testament scholar Craig Bloomberg helps us see it uh, this way when he writes, this would suggest speaking of the translation in the Septuagint, that already before the New Testament age, at least some Jews had come to link the passages in Isaiah 7 to 9 together and to deduce that there would be an additional long-term fulfillment of the birth of a messianic king portended by a more supernatural conception. Translation, they believed a virgin was actually going to conceive. What Matthew's trying to get you to see is that's what took place in Jesus. That's why he says it. Mary and Joseph didn't even know each other. The conception came by the Holy Spirit. They didn't know each other until the son came. He's like trying to put it on a billboard in front of you to say, Jesus is fulfilling this promise. It's a big deal. It's a sign that he's actually the promised Messiah and anointed king. The virgin conception is actually a huge deal in the Christian faith. It's one of the signs and realities that we point to in the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be as the Messiah and Son of God. People from time to time over the years have questioned or often challenged the virgin birth. They've seen it as unimportant, possibly a mythical part of Jesus' story, not really necessary to what it means to be a Christian. In fact, I remember many years ago now when I was coming up in, in ministry, there was a well-known pastor on the west side of the state of Michigan who wrote a book kind of rebranding the Christian faith. And one of his most famous passages in that book, he directly challenges whether or not the virgin birth is even necessary to knowing God, to knowing Christ, to trusting him. 
This is what he wrote in that book. It's called Velvet Elvis. He wrote this. He said, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw into appeal to the followers of Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods had virgin birth. But what if, as you study the origin of the word virgin, you discover that the word virgin in the Gospel of Matthew actually comes from the book of Isaiah, and then you find out that in the Hebrew language at that time, the word virgin can mean several things. And what if you discover that in the first century, being born a virgin also referred to a child whose mother became pregnant the first time she had intercourse? What if that spring was seriously questioned? Could a person keep jumping? Could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? That quote in many ways summarizes many arguments I've heard over the years. Is the virgin birth even necessary to the story of Jesus? And what it sadly to me fails to take into account is Matthew's actual narrative. Because Matthew's trying to make the point of, yes it is. He's trying to bring it front and center and say, God is fulfilling his promise in the virgin conception of Christ. God is giving a sign that this actually is Emmanuel, God with us. If Mary's not a virgin, Jesus isn't Emmanuel. And that means God isn't with us. And so what Matthew structures his thing to show you is when Isaiah said, behold, the virgin shall conceive, the virgin actually has conceived. That's sign one. But there's another sign that Matthew wants to see. It's the second half of the prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So the first sign is the virgin conception. The second sign is the birth of a son. And again, we see that Matthew structures his narrative to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. Listen as the angel comes and says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, verse 20, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which she has conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There's fulfillment one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jump down to verse 25. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The second half gives us the second sign, that the arrival of the son is the arrival of Emmanuel. This isn't just talking about the birth of a male child. When it refers to the son, it's the son of promise. It's again, it's the pointing towards the Messiah. This son is to be named Jesus because he's the one that will save the Messiah and anointed one that will come to rescue God's people, that will deliver them from their enemies and bring them into God's kingdom to save them from their sins. And so Matthew wants you to see that she bore a son. The promised one is here. And he actually wants to show you it in one other way. Notice at the end of 25, he says, and he, Joseph, called his name Jesus. That's actually a really significant phrase. Don't just think of that as a throwaway phrase. In the ancient world, if someone was to name a child that was not there, that was a legal action by which they were actually adopting the child as their own. When Joseph names Jesus, he's becoming his legal father. And in doing so, he's signifying that Jesus is the promised one. If you go back and read the first chunk of Matthew, which we didn't start with, the first 17 
verses of Matthew, Matthew starts with a genealogy. He starts with this person had this person had this person had this person. And if you go and read through all of that, you realize that one of the people that's in Joseph's line is King David. Now that's hugely significant because God had promised that it was from the line of David that he would bring his anointed king. The next son of David would be the one who was the Messiah to establish God's kingdom. And so when Joseph steps in and names Jesus, he's bringing his legal lineage to bear on him that he now is the legal son of David. He's the Messiah. So Matthew's trying to broadcast even throughout his narrative. He's born of a virgin and he's the legal son. He's the promised one. He's the Messiah. He's here. And so he's trying to get you to see, look at these signs. Look how God has fulfilled them. He's fulfilled them every which way in the virgin conception and the son born in the line of David to get you to see that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. And so he wants you to see that in Jesus, God comes to be with us. And that's a big deal. But Matthew doesn't want you to just see it. He wants you to receive it. He actually invites you, even by the way he quotes the prophecy, to trust in Christ and the reality that he is the promised king. If you put Isaiah's original quotation right next to Matthew's, you'll see that Matthew makes one subtle intentional change. Look at it with me. Isaiah 7.14, I'll put it on the screen. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Look how Matthew quotes it. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Who calls him Emmanuel in the Isaiah passage? She does. Who calls him Emmanuel in Matthew's passage? They do. And in that subtle change, he's making an invitation. He's trying to get you to see that God has fulfilled his prophecy, but it's now his people that will call him Emmanuel, that will call him God with us. It's the people whom he will save from their sins that will call him Emmanuel. And in this, Matthew is pointing forward to those who will trust in Christ. He's foreshadowing what the rest of his gospel will unfold, that Jesus came and lived a life that we couldn't, but ultimately would go and die for the sins of us, those who had turned from God, and he would pay the penalty for our sin on the cross so that we could be restored in relationship with God. And then ultimately, he would rise again, conquering Satan, sin, and death, so that we then could be saved from our sins and brought back into relationship with God. And because of that, it's now those who trust in Christ, those who save, he saves from their sins, who now know God with them and God with us. Think of the amazingness of the reality that Matthew is declaring here, that in Jesus, God is with us. Go back to that gap between God and us. The reality is that from the history of the world, there's been a gap between God and us because of our sin. But what Matthew wants you to see that in between God and us, in between the creator and the created, in between the holy and the unholy, in between majesty and crudeness stands a permanent, a person, a promised one, an anointed king. And in him, the blank gets filled that it's now God with us. 
That's the truth of Jesus' arrival and coming, that God is now with us, and that changes the very nature of our relationship. The hope and truth of Jesus is that God is now with us. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Do you live in that reality in your life that God is with you, that God is with us? See, the problem is, I think for many of us, we struggle to both understand and live in that reality. We too often, even for those of us that name the name of Christ, we too often live in the reality with other blanks filling that word. We don't think of God with us. We think of God in all sorts of other ways. I've been a pastor long enough. I've engaged with people long enough. And I know myself enough to know that I think one of the main ways that people actually live when it comes to what word belongs between God and us is not God with us, that most of us actually live as if God abandoned us. That that's actually how we engage with him. That somewhere in the back of our hearts and our minds, we have trouble trusting that God would want to be with us. The sense that we have of God is that, yeah, maybe God made me, maybe God created thing, but God left it up to me a long, long time ago. God abandoned And now it's up to me to figure out some way to get back to him. I've got to work it, earn it, do something to cover that gap of God being with me. Because he's abandoned me. He's not with me. He doesn't love me or desire me. I have to get back to him. I think almost every religion or every worldview comes back and is rooted in the identity that we believe that God abandoned us. So we either have to earn our way back or we give up trying altogether and we disown him completely. And the problem is that's having massive effects on who we are and massive effects on collective humanity. The sense of abandonment that often lies down deep in our identities and souls causes massive amounts of pain in our lives and in our world. Several years ago, uh, researchers actually showed an incredible reality um, about the human experience. Naomi Eisenberg, a researcher at UCLA, and Kipling Williams at Purdue University conducted an experiment um, uh, several years ago where they uh, would have... Uh, individuals come in and play an online multiplayer game. And what they would do is they would have them play this game over several um, minutes, hours, and um, the players that would come into play, they would think that they were actually playing this game with other people. What they didn't know was that they were actually playing a computer game and the computer was rigging the game to over time strategically exclude them from key elements of the game so that they were essentially abandoned by the other players over the course of the game that they were playing. Now, while they were doing this, the researchers were studying their brain activity. And what they found was that as people experienced abandonment in the game from other players, that that actually registered in their brain in the same location that we experience physical pain. Meaning that when you experience emotional abandonment from another individual, 
When you experience exclusion, as if someone is leaving you out, your body cannot tell the difference between a physical pain and an emotional pain in your brain. It registers it at pain, period. And many of us carry that pain out of the experiences of our lives by feeling abandonment and exclusion from people around us in lots of scenarios, family, friends, situations, and horrible things. Now, if that's true of us, in regards to our relationship with other human beings, how much more do you think that affects us if our core understanding of ourselves is that God abandoned us? If that our sense of God, the person who made me, who created me, who's supposed to know me best, has left me on my own, what sort of pain do you think that causes to our souls and to our lives? And how many people are living out of that reality, striving to find some sense of worth, identity, purpose, connection, anything to make me feel like I'm not actually alone? And how many of the problems collectively that we experience in our world are rooted in that? I mean, I would argue that I think any social problem any social disorder that we experience, from racism to classism to abuse to exclusion to conflict to strife, is rooted in our sense of abandonment. Because we weren't created to be abandoned. We were created to be with God. But our sin has turned us from him. And now we're running around in the world trying to fix all the mess that we've created because we think God abandoned us when it's actually the other way around. This is why the reality that Matthew's trying to share with us is such a big deal. Because what he's trying to communicate to you is that in Jesus, and in Jesus being the fulfillment of God's promise, God didn't abandon us. God actually came to be with us. And if God is with us, that changes everything. And with, when with is put in between God and us, in Christ, that God comes to be with us, that changes the whole story. That even though God created the world good, he created us for relationship with himself. And even though we turn from him in our sinfulness and self-centeredness and our pride and arrogance, and even though we deserve to be removed and excluded from God forever, God never had to fill in the blank. But the truth of with is that God loved us enough to send his son to do something about our sin so that he could be with us again, so that we could know him, so that redemption is possible, so that you and I can have a living relationship with the God who made us and that all of creation can be redeemed in God's kingdom and in his new creation with changes the story of everything. But with also changes the relationship. You see, God with us means that we can have a relationship with him. With reminds us that God loves you, that he wants a relationship with you. Because the truth of God with us is that God can be with you. And that's amazing. That you can know God and he can know you. That your relationship with God doesn't have to be based on what you do for him. 
It's based on what Christ has already done for you. He took the step of coming after you. He took the step of loving you first. And with changes your whole relationship with him. With changes your reality. With means that no matter what you might be facing, no matter what circumstances or suffering that you might encounter, that God is not abandoning you. With means he's with you in the best moments of life and the worst moments of life. From the most painful to the most mundane, with means God is with us. Wasn't it Jesus who said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age? Wasn't it him who said, I won't abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. I will make my presence known to you. With means you can know God, not just one day, you can know him now in the mess and the mundane. And with changes our eternity. Because with means that God actually has a purpose and a plan. And that in Jesus, he will do what he has always promised to do. He will fulfill his promises. He will come and establish his kingdom and bring a new heaven and a new earth. And that in Jesus, we have hope that one day we will be with God forever. That's the good news of the gospel. That in Jesus, you get God, not just now, but on into eternity. It's Revelation 21.3 where John writes, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them as their God. That's our future in Christ. To be with God in his eternal kingdom forever. You see, with changes everything. And the good news that Matthew begins his story of Jesus with is that because God is faithful to his promises in Jesus, God comes to be with us. And he's made a way for you to be with him. And friends, that really will change your life. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.